Welcome to the Nick and Matt Show. Bringing the player interviews you want to hear and the hot topics you want to discuss. Streaming live on the Foundation Podcast YouTube channel, here's Nick and Matt. What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? You have made it to week 46 of the Nick and Matt Show, now on the Foundation Podcast Network. If you go check it out on YouTube, that's where you'll find us. Hit that subscribe button. We would greatly appreciate it. Matt, I'm excited to be back in the studio down here in Virginia. I know last week I had <laughs> off. I uh, Last week people were thinking that I shaved my head, I got a better jawline, and I ended up being related to you. But that's not <laughs> the case. Your brother actually helped me out, filled in for me, and I'm uh, super appreciative of that. Yeah, real quick, Nick, this is uh, on, on the fly. Do you mind pulling your microphone up just a tad if you can, just for audio thing? It'll sound better. Listen, listen cool. to your radio voice. That <laughs> sounds good. That's that's better. Okay. Um. Yeah. True. That was my brother. Uh, my brother got rave reviews. Like, as yeah. in, we should be afraid for our jobs. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> this is the Nick and Matt show. I, I was like, look, am I getting kicked off the show? I mean, no. If it it's, happens. The Nick, it's the Nick and Matt show, yeah. and um, it wouldn't be a show without us. And he wouldn't exactly. have had an opportunity to come on the show without us. That's right. No, we there we um. We were very grateful that he's like, yeah, I'll drive in and I'll be in studio. And the reason yeah, it worked out super. also so well is because he does another show, disc golf show. So mm -hmm. with me on the disc golf network. Um, so luckily he's not afraid to be behind the webcam, as no. you would say. No. But uh, anyways, Matt, we're 46 weeks into our show. We started out last, what was it? End of March, early April of last year. And kind of got the show up and running. We've almost hit that one year mark of like how many weeks we've done of it, which is pretty insane. But um, some newer people in the disc golf world, we've obviously seen the explosion of disc golf throughout the whole country and the whole world in and of itself. So some people might not know how you and I even got into the sport and got into the positions of where we're at. So I'll let you go first if you want to just kind of like introduce yourself again. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Uh, like you said, we're full year 50 or what are we? 46 episodes in. And so let me, yeah. yeah. So let me do it this way. Uh, not to give you every detail, but I grew up playing Frisbee. My mom introduced me to the flying disc, if you will. Thank you, mom, for that. Um, and then from that point, I didn't know anything about disc golf until I was probably 21 or 22. Um, my then brother-in-law at the time, it said, hey, do you want to see a disc do cool things? You know, hyzer flips. And all. I didn't know the terminology, but s curves and flip over and all, all these things and i'm thinking to myself yeah i would i would um and so he yeah. introduced me to it and i thought it was magic watching a hyzer flip or a flex shot or anything and i wanted to learn it from that moment on i'm very competitive and so i just continued to play um fast forward from there another mm, nine years or so after i was introduced and i was like i had kids i had a wife and i was like let me introduce my kids to it uh, one thing led to another. I started the organization Kids Disc Golf. Actually, I'm wearing the hat tonight. Um, mm -hmm. And that kind of blew up pretty pretty good. Uh, we actually hosted US the U.S. Juniors Disc Golf Championship um, multiple times, and that was fantastic. Um, and we were slated to run Junior World. So I, I stuck my foot in the door a little bit there. Um, and let me kind of transition it back to you a little bit. I actually worked as a youth pastor for a while at a church. And Nick was mm -hmm. one of the students in that youth ministry. And I would take out a disc and throw it in the parking lot at this church. 
And I'm like, Nick, let's see how far you can throw. And so let me kind of pass it over to Nick now to kind of introduce his introduction to the sport. I was going to say that was probably just about nine years ago. I think 2012, 2013 wow. is when I got into disc golf and, you know, really started, I would say, playing. I actually won my first amateur two tournament. May of 2013 was the first year I won it at my home course at Pyramids. So Matt is actually the one who introduced me to the sport. And then his then brother-in-law, Jeremy Binley, was another great mentor of mine. They both kind of kickstarted me into coming to Monday Night Leagues. And then doing doubles and everything like that. And then starting to play tournaments. So originally that's how we got into it. And then obviously I introduced some other friends into it. Matt and I were one of the reasons why, you know, Hannah used to be then Hannah Croak. She got into the sport. And so her and I have been friends even before disc golf, anything like that. And then, um, Nick, Nick, real quick, interjecting, remember on social media, it comes around once a year. Hannah posted yeah. a uh, social post on Facebook to my Facebook profile saying, Matt, yeah. teach to me Frisbee golf. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it came yes. up just recently again, I think. Yeah. It's around that time. So you you yep. continued to introduce her to the sport. Yep. And then exactly. So then we would start going out playing. And then we both kind of got heavily involved in actually watching the professional side of it. Um, it took a little while for me to even really know that there was a pro side to it besides for local pros. And so then I got to know some of the great pros like Nate Doss will always be one of my favorite players. And then Paul Macbeth was one of my favorite players because of how good he is. And then just other players who I actually got to casually meet. Like I met Greg Barsby at our weekend league, Dana Vicic, a couple of other touring pros, super fun to meet them. And then uh, obviously years later, Hannah and Paul actually met, started dating, got married. Um, That's when I got to know Paul a lot. And then so Paul and I have obviously become very good friends. Uh, He's been kind enough to let me live with him before, live with him now while they're out on the road. And so, yeah, that's pretty much my story into disc golf. And because of that, that got me involved with, you know, the foundation guys and doing a couple of videos with them here and there and now doing the foundation podcast network and everything like that. So it's been a super fun journey. Um, Fortunately, this year I've been really dedicating actually most of my time to disc golf, which has been super fun. Uh, tournaments have been going pretty well. I have, you know, I'll usually have a pretty good tournament and then an okay tournament. Um, so it's been a fun year, but I'm actually just trying to dive in full to the content of disc golf and being a disc golf player. So you just brought up something interesting, like how good are we? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to give ratings cause it's the only way to compare. I'm 953 yeah. rated right now. And you're like mm-hmm. nine, 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 nine Okay. Oh, there you go. A little bump. I don't want to leave those five points. Yeah, so like Nick no, on no, average, I, I'm, I'm five away from that thousand rated mark, which I want. I've gotten a little bit better since Nick's moved away. I'm not sure why, but now that means Nick and I would on average, he'd probably yeah. shoot about four or five strokes better than me mm-hmm. on average. Uh, sometimes that's 10 strokes better. <laughs> so depending um, on the course, yeah, it depends on the there. course. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And then the funny thing is, Nick, we say, you know, here, I picked up a Frisbee when I was a kid. One thing leads to another. I'm at Paul and Hannah's, you know, wedding reception. <laughs> so, like, yeah, it's just the exactly. way the small world is. Uh, yep. That's Nick and yep. I's con- connection there. Um, I've competed at Am Worlds once back in 2011. That was a great experience. And uh, Nick competes at Pro Worlds how many times? I've competed at one pro world so far at okay. Smuggler's Notch in Vermont, and then I'm actually competing at this pro world. So I was lucky enough. I don't know how the invites work, but I was lucky enough to actually get an invite so I could sign up at a certain date. I was able to make it in, and I'm flying out in just a few weeks. I'm actually really, really excited for it. 
Awesome. So that was our introduction, guys. For those of you who knew who we were, you're like, get on with it. You fast forward. Yeah. You hit the. I was going to say, just skip the skip the, the first ten minutes. The, of the thirty show. second fast forward trick, you know, yeah. on, on iTunes. Um, okay, so here's the Masters Cup recap. We're going to talk about the stats from the event, um, but this has been a long happening. I don't know the right way to say that. A long reoccurring event uh, at the famous De La Vega Disc Golf Course. Um, what's funny is. Not everybody's sure about how it's played out in the previous years, but they had a golf course and De La uh, in previous years, and they would do one round at each course. This time, this iteration, all three rounds happened at the disc golf course. We are going to talk. We're actually going to have a full conversation about this course, but let's not do that right now. Um, let's talk about how it played out. Uh, 24 holes, par 75, and then uh, MPO field of 76. Um, Nick, when we uh, talk stats for this, Stat Mando, again, everybody, if you haven't checked. Yeah, our good friends over at Stat Mando. Yeah, and I can tell you they're working on something uh, significant. I say this every week, but I'm telling you, uh, they actually, and I don't think I shared this with you, Nick, they, they've given me um, the opportunity to have a little bit of insight uh, before it's officially launched out to everybody, and it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but I got without... a DM about the website. So okay, good. I'm, I'm excited to good. dive into it. So let's talk about how this played out. Uh, do you want to just give us kind of the scenario to the ending? Like, what do we see? Top three or top four? Who are the relevant players coming into the final nine, if you will? Well, I'll first say warning, 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 spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about the winners, obviously, right now. And that is a very good friend of mine. Super awesome dude. Adam Hammes taking down his first national tour win over at Masters Cup. Super excited for him. He finished 33 under par, total score of 192. Um, we talk about ratings because, you know, it's a thing in the disc golf world right now. You can argue with them or against them, but this is a stat that we do have. He shot the highest round rating, 1076 in round one. His event average was 1054, which is 17 points above his player rating. And then historically, his highest event rating at this one was 1020, oh, excuse me, 10-10 so was his event rating. Let's talk about that real quick. I think, and this will be up for debate for a while until, you know, uh, enough people say it's a stupid stat, which I'm fully open to that opinion. But until that happens, it's, an, it's almost like I would say the eye test. I see a high rating. And you don't count that as the end-all, be-all, but you look at it and you go, okay, dang, why did he perform higher than his average? What is that? And, and for Adam Hammes, this is kind of blows me away a little bit. He had just about the same amount of circle two putts as everybody else, but he made 10 of those. Yeah. So he had a few more. I think, what was he, 10 for 30 from circle two? Yeah. So that's higher than anybody. Nobody else did that. Yeah. Um, circle one putting highest putt, obviously that's his strength. Um, so this is why he did well, very high fairway hits. And then he was first place in gained putting strokes against the field first place. So putting was the reason why he performed higher than his average at events. That is excellent. Congratulations, Adam. Number two, second place. We're going to have him on later, Nick, James Proctor. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much you know about him, but he took first in the stat gained on T to green. So he was getting to the green um, better than everybody. Um, than everyone, first yeah. place, he gained 13 strokes he's, on the field. 
he's got a pretty powerful backhand. Um, I've seen coverage of him here and there just throughout the years. Um, he's got a, he was on OTB coverage, I think with Paul Macbeth, one of the rounds, um, if you want to check it out, but, um, he's got a good, good backhand, good forehand. I'm pretty sure. And he's from what it seems, he's a decent putter. I mean, 85% for circle one X, he hit seven for 27 from circle two. So he's obviously a good putter. Just Adam just etched him out a little bit and the full on putting stats. So, yeah. In fact, if you want to do comparison, um, it looks like he compared in circle two putting to like Ricky, um, mm-hmm. Cal, well, not mm-hmm. Calvin. Um, yeah, Ricky, uh, Kyle Klein had pretty good circle two putting this weekend, mm-hmm. um, as well as Paul McBeth seven for 23. Um, yeah, but man, can we just move down a little bit? So by the way, Paul McBeth, everybody made a push in the final round. He was just hanging yeah. out, you know, top 10 made a push in the final round, um, to, mm-hmm secure fourth place as i said a few weeks ago nothing to see here paul's fine Mm -hmm. Um, uh just a shout out to to kevin jones really quick getting that Mm. top three getting that last podium finish um kevin's had kind of an up and down year so far so it's good to see him kind of back on that leaderboard where we are used to seeing him in the years past um i think this is a good thing in the right direction i think that's a good confidence boost going to the next few tournaments but ultimately going to the first major of the year for the men um coming up soon in june yeah, and so let's we are the Nick and Matt show, and we're going to talk about the bad stats too, a little bit mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Nick, how many did we say? How many participants at this event? It said seventy seventy six. Okay, so for the if FPO you side of it, if you get thirty seven for the FPO, if you get sixty second yep. in putting or seventieth place in putting, according to the field. Okay, this is according to the field how you're placing. Um, mm-hmm. there, that's not going to be good for you. And I'm talking about Calvin yep. Heimberg, his worst finish to date uh, this season, uh, tying for 33rd place. And Garrett Gerthy, um, tying for 55th. And he was 70th yeah. on the gained on putting strokes and 38th uh, from tee to green. He was just not performing well. Would you think there was any jitters coming back as a re- returning champ, if you will? I mean, I don't really think personal. I don't think it's jitters as much. I mean, with Garrett, we've always talked about it in years past. Um, and he even said it when he was on our show not too long ago. He is not the best putter. He'll admit it. Um, that's somewhere where he does struggle the most is his putting. Usually he's very good tee to green. But looking at this tournament, he was on the lower side of it. Um, but that's also Garrett's known as one of the biggest power throwers in the game. The De La Vega course, it's a very wooded course with a lot of elevation. So one bad tee shot, if you hit the tree up just a little bit too high and that disc kicks to the right or left down the hill, it's it's going for a ride. And when he and won, that's where the bogeys, that's where the big numbers come about. Yeah, and when he won, it was with the golf course in play, if I'm not it mistaken. Was, yep. So yep, it's it a was. different, I don't want to say it's a different tournament, but it's a different tournament. He made zero of 26 putts from circle two, zero. Thank you, Stat Mando, for these stats. It makes it easy for us. Uh, you guys are great at what you do yeah, over go there. Yeah. Go check out Stat Mando on Twitter. Uh, let's jump into FPO. Nick, mm-hmm. I've said it on my other show. I'll say it on this show. I'll say it everywhere. Yeah. Paige Pierce is back. When she came back and won OTB so. Open, I was just like, yeah, it's what we're going to see yep. again the rest of the year. How do you feel about that? Uh, I completely agree with it. I mean, we were just waiting for Paige to kind of like get back on that train that she was on of just heading in the right direction of that thousand rated mark 
And it seems like we're finally seeing that vintage page form. I mean, look at what she did at U.S. Women's. She was dominant, 100% circle one putting for the three rounds that happened at that event. And then coming out to this one and just being able to kind of not coast to the victory, but for the most part, I mean, she did win the tournament by five strokes. So I, there obviously wasn't too, too much pressure coming down the line for her. Yeah. So Paige's dominance in this, I say dominance, like it was like a blow away. It, it was a good win, but it was 22. Yeah. She gained 22 strokes. She took first place on a T to green stat. So she's getting off the tee pad into a putt better than anybody at this event. Um, yeah. I will say though, it, what's interesting, um, circle one in regulation is really low, uh, 24%, but maybe that's just the way De La plays. I'm not sure. Yeah, I guess you could say that's probably the way that Dayla plays. I mean, it's got the little green stat next to it, so it's not the best, but it's definitely above average right. for that 24%. Yeah. Um, just watching the coverage throughout the course, I mean, the holes aren't necessarily super long. They're just very, very tight. And the elevation differences, like I was just talking about, are pretty insane. And so no reaching the basket you know, circle one in regulation. She had good circle two in regulation though. I mean, that definitely helped out putting stats all across the board. Weren't amazing for the FPO side of the field. Alexis Manuhanda though, shooting 88% from circle one putting. So that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, and something worth noting, Nick, no FPO player shot under par in the final round. That is yeah. worth noting. Um, yeah. Juliana Corver. I think it's pretty cool to see her story coming back to the scene. However, agreed. in this tournament, her putting was her biggest issue. She lost strokes on the average, shooting 32nd place according to gained putting strokes. Uh, 32nd, mm -hmm. that is really, that's going to be her issue. But she still took tied for third. Uh, like, if, if, and I always do this, I did this for Kona too, I think last week when Josh was on the show. Mm -hmm. If mm -hmm. you could only just find a way to putt average to the field, you're going to move up everybody. Like she would have been in just about yep. second place. Juliana yep. Corver. No. Yeah. I, I actually love seeing Juliana come back into the game and actually, you know, putting back in the work and everything like that and competing at a very high level. She's obviously done very well. The last few events, she just won the U S women's disc golf championships in the FP 40 division, which punched a ticket to the throw pink um, disc golf championships for the women. And so that's pretty exciting. Um, she is an FP. She's a master's level player. Coming back, she's a five-time world champion, one of the you know, best female players to ever play the game. So it's cool to see her come back and beat up on the young guns. So I like it. Yeah, for sure. And so, I mean, that is some of what I found interesting here. Again, uh, Juliana playing uh, above her average, which is good. Um, but here's some notables that are worth pointing out. They are that Adam Hammes... Um, this is his first elite series win. I think we might've mentioned that, but his mm -hmm. best finish before this was second place of the 2019 hall of fame classic. Awesome. In, um, in a playoff versus Calvin, very, it, very fun playoff to watch too. And do you remember everyone was talking about Hamas's putting and how did he win yeah. at De La putting? Obviously putting. you have to do more than that, but that was like his big takeaway. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Speaking of James Proctor, who we'll have on in just a moment. Um, this was his highest elite series finish. His best prior to this was fourth place at Beaver State Fling. 
Um, I think I mentioned this. I think it was 2015. James Proctor taking 15, 17th. 17th. Oh, 2017. Yep. He took no, 15. No, 2017. Yeah, he took 15th place at Worlds. Yep. And then finally, this one's a notable for the wrong reason, if you will. Yeah. Thank you to yeah. Stat Mando. What I've just been giving you, you can find over on Twitter as well at Stat Mando. Garrett Gerthy has only finished worse than 55th place once in the last 15 years. 15 years. And that's wild. It, so, where did he place worse than that once in the last 15 years? Was three years ago at the MVP Open. Our home course. Yeah. 60th place. But the point is, this is one of his worst ever. Mm hmm. So not good at coming back as a returning champ, but again, they took the golf course away. So exactly. Um, Nick, does anything else stand out to you about the performance this weekend, or are we just going to wait to talk about it when we get to the course? No, I think that's definitely the best things kind of notables for the FPO division really quick was Katrina Allen in second place, obviously Alexis Manjuhano getting tied for third place, which also punched her ticket to the throw pink event at the end of the year, which is pretty amazing for her. Kona Panis and Juliana Corbett tied for third. And then Owen Scoggins was actually tied for 11th place. Um, she was first in gain putting. This is talking about Owen. First in gain putting, but was on the lower side of gained tee to green. So we always know that Owen is an incredibly good putter, but off the tee pad at this event, especially it didn't show as much. So, yeah, I would say that's it for the Santa Cruz Masters Cup recap. We'll talk more about it after the interview, obviously. For sure. Everybody, we have lined up a guest that, I, if I'm being honest, wasn't going to be a guest originally that we would have thought about having lined up. Uh, we've been trying to focus on performances. And, well, James Proctor, who, who is this guy, right? Final round. Uh, am I wrong in saying it was the hot round, right? Round three. It was the hot round. I think I want to yeah, say, I want to say it yes it, or tied for yeah. it. And so anyways, it was tied for made yep. a very big push taking second place. We talked no, about sorry, his, it was the hot round. Yeah. We yeah. talked about his stats. Uh, he played very well. T to green, uh, amongst other things. Uh, let's go ahead and bring him in and find out a little bit about him. Uh, how is it going James? And, uh, where are you calling us from? Hey guys, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, it's going good. I'm calling you from up in Seattle, Washington. Okay. Is this where you're living? Is this hometown for you? Yeah, I was born and raised two hours north of where Daylaw is. Um, and then in January of this year, I moved up to Seattle to live with my girlfriend who's going up here for grad school. Nice. And are you, so, I mean, we'll obviously get into this in the interview, but do you work another job or are you focused solely on disc golf at the moment? I do. I teach special education. So wow, it's nice. very cool. Very, yeah. very cool. Uh, you probably already the, learning new things. I love it. Yeah, you probably yeah. get the wow often when someone says that. Um, what does it take? What does it take? And I guess how do I say this? Because I want you to brag on yourself, but that's hard to do. What does it take to be a special education teacher? Um, I think you know you just have to want to be there for the kids. There's a lot of kind of politics that comes with education and. And obviously they can, you know, all kids can be frustrating at times. Um, so um, I originally, I went to school to teach high school math. Uh, and then d during my undergrad, I found special education and students with disabilities. And um, I just 
the work meant so much more to me, making connections with those kids. And, and, uh, so I just, you know, I was really drawn to, to that side, um, and that specific group of students. And, uh, it's part of the reason why I'm not on tour full time is because mm -hmm. I just love doing what I do so much. So that's awesome. Incredible. Yeah. Cause you're obviously an incredibly gifted disc golfer as well as probably a very incredibly gifted teacher and so it's really cool where you're able to dedicate so much into both of the things that you love so i guess kind of starting off with the interview aspect of everything how did you get into disc golf um so growing up in california there was actually a course right by my house when i was a little kid uh, when i was maybe six or seven my dad took me over there we had no idea what it was uh, just seeing people play it driving driving by and um you know we went over there with a big old beach frisbee and someone showed us the disc golf disc this was back in 2002, 2003. So um, the sport was still pretty new. But um, yeah, we, we had fun with it. We started playing the weekly every week. And as I got older and and grew a little bit more and could play bigger courses, we, we started, you know, doing more weeklies. And, and in 2007, I played my first tournament. Um, and just, you know, I was pretty busy in high school, so I didn't get to play too much. I only played five, six, seven tournaments a year. And then when I went to college um, in Reno, that's when it kind of the sport really took off for me because I had more free time and being that close to Tahoe, all those courses around Tahoe, it's how I spent most of my free time in college. Wow. So, okay, spent most of your free time up till this point, maybe your friends in college all the way up to this point. What would somebody, how would one of those people that you played with so often describe your disc golf game? What would they say is like your strength? Um, you know, I've been playing for so long and, and before I was always backhand dominant, um, and, and a forehand was definitely a weakness in my game. And so I spent a lot of time focusing on that. Um, but as far as like a pure strength go, I don't, I, I think, you know, just being a smart disc golfer, I want to say that sounds kind of boring, but I kind of know how to, um, you know, just how to attack courses and how to get under par. I mean, I don't throw 700 feet and I, don't bang every 80 foot putt, but just, you know, consistency, doing all the small things. Um, and I, I like to pride myself on my putting. It was actually kind of a weakness for me at day law. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, I'm not like crazy, super flashy. I just, I just try to do all the small things well. Mm -hmm. So over the course of the 72 holes that you played, you only had two bogeys the whole time. So obviously you're playing pretty smart golf and your tee to green was incredible. And then you were able to capitalize on an eagle in the final round. What is it like at a tournament like this where you're playing three rounds of 24 holes? Is there more of an exhaustion factor into it? Like, how do you keep up with that playing a longer course? And obviously, wait time at these kind of tournaments is longer as well. Yeah, you know, I grew up playing De La, so I'm very comfortable on that course. I know I hadn't been there since 2017, but I know exactly what I want to do on each hole and, and where I want to, you know, avoid. Um, and... So, and it's funny, the two bogeys I took were both off of birdie putts. I ran a birdie mm. putt on original hole two, and then I had a birdie putt hit and roll away to a 40 footer and missed that one. So, um, that was my main focus was, was, you know, play aggressive, but safe off the tee and just try to rack up birdies and avoid the bogeys. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, three rounds, one round a day, it's not too taxing. Um, you know, there's some hills and stuff at day law, but it's just, you know, it's, it's just part of the tournament experience. The weights, the weights are tough, but it's, it just comes with, with the professional tournaments. I mean, mm -hmm. you have backups everywhere you go. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're going to talk about the course, not during your interview, unless you have something you want to share. Generally, I guess I heard that there were some changes to some of the holes out there from how they normally play. Uh, did you feel like, and had you played them before, did you feel like they were good changes or were you kind of disappointed? Um, you know, they definitely added a different vibe. I hadn't played them before. I, I flew down Thursday night um, and, and just played Friday morning. So um, I did, as far as scoring separation, um, the change on original 11 did add that kind of eagle piece, even though it's kind of a par three and a half. I mean, it's just, you know, a really tricky shot and you got to bang an uphill putt. But I do like the original position on that better. I think it's a better hole, that dead straight spot. Um, I did like the change on I-5. I felt like you had to execute two shots instead of one shot and a jump putt. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought that was a good change. And then the whole after I-5, I like the basket over there, but I think it was a little too short. Um, I think the par three position is fine. It, it didn't provide a lot of scoring separation, but I don't think this new pin did either. Mm -hmm. um, I like the idea of a par four and a dog leg out to the left. Maybe if they made the Mando so you can't go over the top, um, force people through the middle, that might change a little bit. But yeah, that's, I mean, obviously you're not going to have scoring separation on every hole. And De La's, they, they basically took, you know, those really hard to get par threes where you really felt good about a two. Mm -hmm. And you were fine with a three, and then they kind of made a mandatory birdie holes. So it, it, it felt like it was playing a couple strokes easier uh, than previous tournaments. And uh, um, it, it's fun having the par fours. I, I actually did see there was a couple eagles on the, on the old mm -hmm. hole 11. I was able to pick up one in the last round. And then Dustin Keegan in the second round, yep. the one after I-5, um, executing it perfectly. So it, it does add some excitement. I see what they're trying to do. Um, and you know, Dela is still Dela. It's going to play the same no matter what. So um, <laughs> I think the changes were fine. Yeah, it definitely seemed kind of as an outsider looking in at like U disc live scoring and everything like that. It did seem like kind of like birdie to bogey percentage wise. It did seem like it was playing a little bit easier this year. But that's also coming with the fact that players are getting better. Players are learning the courses year in and year out. Going back to this event, that's obviously going to be something that helps them out. But Going into the last round, you made an incredible push to take that, you know, potential playoff for first place or to even get for first place outright. What was the pressure like going into that last round? And then how did you feel, let's say, 12 holes into it halfway through the round? Yeah, you know, going into the last round, I was in a big tie for third. And my main goal was to try to take third by myself. Um, but I really wasn't competing against anyone else. I just, you know, I wanted to go out there and put a good round together. I wasn't very happy with my first round. Um, and then second round, I believe I shot 10 or 11 and it felt good, but I knew there was, there was a hot round out there. I knew I could get a couple more birdies and try to avoid the bogeys. So I was really just trying to go out there and take it one hole at a time, play the course and, you know, just see where the score stacked up at the end. Um, and I really wasn't watching any of the scoring. I had no idea until we were sitting on a backup on I-5 and people were talking about the scores and I saw... I had three strokes on third place mm -hmm. um, and that made me happy. And so I, I still wasn't concerned about what Adam and Kevin were doing. I kind of just wanted to, to solidify that third place. So I told myself, you know, get the par fours, finish strong and just see where they, where they lined up. Um, and then with four holes to go, I had a death putt 
and I was totally fine laying it up. And then I thought, you know what? I better check the scores. So I turned around. I said, do I need to make this? And, and Sean Mercy, who was keeping our U-disc, said, yeah, you need to run it. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the score, and I believe I was 30. I was 30, and Adam was 31, but he still had a couple easy birdie, yep. Yep. birdies. So, you know, I was like, okay, you're, at, you're here now. You might as well just see what you can do. So I ran it. Didn't make the putt, but I stayed there, tapped in for par, and then just told myself, you know, it doesn't matter what anyone else does. Just get all the birdies you can and and go from there. So, mm-hmm. Wow. It was fun, though. I'll tell you what, that was probably one of the more fun rounds I've played just because every stroke mattered and yeah. <laughs> it was exciting. And Wow. Yeah. I was just going to say, so you're telling me that missed uh, putt, that outside circle putt there could have tied you up. Yeah, you know, I mean, he did have, <laughs> I believe he was two holes back. So who knows yeah. where that would have stacked up. But I mean, every stroke just puts more pressure on him. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I watched his round on on Joe Mez earlier this morning. And we kind of talked a little bit after the round. And, and, you know, he totally clutched up and made some sweet putts down the stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, who knows if I get to 33 and he's got to go birdie birdie to finish. Um it's just, yeah, you never know how it's going to play out. So, yeah, uh, I'm looking here at some of your stats here, and I think this is round three. Uh, you made a nice couple, nice 38 footers, which is in a 49 footer going hole eight, 38 footer, hole 10, 49, hole 12, 38. So, there, and then hole 14, 49 that's a stretch of like six holes where you made like four circle two putts, significant ones. Yeah, it was, uh, that was the weak part of my game. The first two rounds, I was kind of making most of my inside the circle, but I wasn't connecting outside. So before round three, I I spent a couple extra minutes putting that 40 to 50 range just to kind of get comfortable. That way, if I did have to run some of those putts, I would feel more confident. Um, it's hard at daylight, you know, you can't, it's not flat ground and green grass where you have no worries when you're running a 45 footer. If you miss, there's a good chance you're going to take a bogey or have to hit some crazy comeback putt. So, um, yeah, I I felt good. My, my game was feeling good. Um, I did miss like, I believe two inside the circle putts during that stretch too. So, um, I just, you know, I was, my, my only goal was to try to give myself birdie looks and then knock them down. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. yeah, it was, uh, I was feeling good. Yeah. You missed th- not to pour salt on any wounds, but you brought it up. <laughs> you missed three circle, two putts going into the final five holes. So, um, but for what it's worth, you mentioned that was your struggle. And then you did have that nice burst there where you got four, you only got seven circle, two putts the whole tournament. And so what you're saying is accurate. You're saying that was yeah. your struggle. But then you hit four solid ones there in the final round. That seems to be what gave you that edge on the hot round. Is that how you feel the putting was the difference? Um, honestly, yeah, I think it helped keep it going. Driving was definitely the difference for me. I believe original hole four was the only time I was really scrambling to save par, and I was able to hit a nice outside the circle putt. But every other hole, I was I was either putting for birdie or I was just you know easy pitch up for par. Mm-hmm. Um, the tricky thing about Daylight is if you're 40 or 50 feet, half the time you're laying up because you're not going to want to run the putt. And the other half, you might not have a look. You might be behind a bush or a tree in your way or whatever. So those circle two putts, I mean, it's not going to be the same for everyone. But, you know, I, I, 
I did not run probably more than half of my circle two putts. I was just happy to lay up and take a par. It's I, I'm curious that like looking at the stats now, you see yep. like Adam hit 10 for 30 of the circle two. Like how many of those were actually just, you know, he laid up under the basket. Cause like you're saying, you could be 50 feet out. You know, we don't know that when you're looking at you disc live, yeah. but he might have absolutely no look at it. So you lay it up and that does count against your circle two percentage, which, you know, sucks, but it is what it is. And so, yeah, I would say at least 10 of those, he probably laid up. Probably. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. And that's yeah. a big difference. That's a big yeah, difference. I bet more than more than half of those baskets, there's danger behind or it's mm -hmm. on the slope. So and, and the thing about daylight is if you're playing good, like Adam and I were, you know, it, you're fine taking pars. You just mm -hmm. get the birdies when they come and, and take pars when they don't. And you're going to shoot under par. You're going to shoot a hot round. So, um, you know, there. I, I mean, at down the stretch, he felt a little need to press. But, you know, the, the front 12 of that round, if he's 55 feet away. He's fine laying up for par, as was I. So mm -hmm. it does do the numbers a little bit. Yeah. And so, it's, real quick, uh, I think it was Steve yep. Dodge texted me earlier this week and we were talking about stats. I said, hey, who came up with circle one, circle two? I was like, was that you, Steve Dodge? <laughs> He's <laughs> like, I think that was uh, Udisc, Matt, Josh, and um, and Steve. I think collectively they came up with the need for that. But what's interesting is, and he mentioned this and it came up tonight on this show with you, James, like... We have to we have to track stats that are actually not putt attempts. Like if yeah. someone's laying up from circle two, it, was it an attempt? No, you know. So like that'd be neat to see. That'd be a cool little stat to add in there. Um, go yeah, ahead. I was thinking about that too earlier because I, you know, I I was curious and I went on UDIS to see where I stacked mm -hmm. up and and I saw that and I was thinking, well, how many of those putts did I not even putt? <laughs> yeah. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I've actually never thought of it like that until right now as we're having the conversation about it. Yeah, and it makes you think because yeah. it's like even even circle one percentages, like I haven't been able to watch the full last round. But let's say Adam on hole 24, if he was able to just lay up a putt from, you know, 25 feet, you know, it does count against his circle one percentage. But I guess at that point, when you're laying up for the win, it really doesn't <laughs> matter. But yeah, so. You have a second place. You have your highest finish ever at an elite series event. Um, are you playing more elite series events throughout the year? And I guess what are your goals in disc golf as you're a full-time teacher, but then you're able to play at a high level? Yeah, I'm playing um, the two Portland tournaments coming up and then the world championships. Um, and then a couple, hopefully a couple of the pro tournaments this summer. Um, I know I'm going to Ledgestone and Idlewild, so. Um, you know, for me, I, I know that I'm capable of playing at that level. Um, I was not happy with my 15th place at OTB a couple weeks ago. Um, so it, I think it was just, you know, a confidence booster for me that to show myself that I can do it because I know I'm capable of it. Um, and I've done it before, but, um, it's just, you know, it, it I think it helped give me that confidence to do it again. Um, and I don't have you know, I'm not totally sure what my disc golf goals are at the moment. Um, it, especially for like the next two weekends, because I won't get a chance to practice the course. I'll be playing Portland open blind. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm not going to go there and expect to get top five when I'm trying to learn the course the first round. I'm just going to try to play a little bit safer. And then, you know, rounds two, round three, maybe try to get a little more aggressive and, mm -hmm. and shoot hot. But um, yeah, for now, I'm, I'm enjoying teaching. I'm enjoying playing when I can. And uh, just trying to do my best to to compete at that highest level. Um, I, I'd love to get a win. 
uh, I know I'm capable of it. I just, you know, especially courses where I'm already comfortable. Um, I feel mm -hmm. great about Masters Cup. If Beaver State were happening this year, that's another course where I've I've played it a handful yep. of times, so I feel comfortable there. Um, so yeah, you know, for me, it's just at this point, you know, I, I'm just finding that balance between loving what I do for work and then also doing what I can to compete at the highest level in disc golf as well. It you, you said this when you came on the interview uh, in the beginning here. You said you think probably some of your strength is, and I'm summarizing this, but your mental game. And everything I'm hearing you say is just so level-headed that I'm going, it just makes sense. Like that is your strength. You're very, it seems to me that's how you're coming off. Um, can I ask, uh, who, who are you playing disc golf with on your regular disc golf rounds? I mean, you're getting out, you're not touring all the time. Are you playing leagues? Are you playing tournaments locally? And then um, are there any notable names that you get to compete with uh, in your area? Yeah, you know, I mean, up in the Seattle area, shoot, even a C tier, I'm competing against Kyle Crabtree, Chandler Fry, Dion Arlen, you know, Sexton's from the area. So when he's not out on tour, he's playing. Um, you know, there's a countless number of guys at, at any given local tournament up here to compete against. Um, I don't get to play too often during the week. Um, you know, if I have a tournament coming up, I'll practice that, that Wednesday or Thursday. But um, for the most part, you know, I just, play the local tournaments on the weekends. If it makes sense, if not, I'll play around somewhere and then, and the big ones when I can. Um, but yeah, and you know, I just, I, I've been playing for so long. It all pretty much feels second nature to me. So, um, before a tournament, I'll go out and putt for a while, go to the field, but I, I don't feel like I have to play every day to, to stay sharp. Do you, <laughs> this question I think is going to come off really stupid, but I'm hoping it gives us some insight. You're, <laughs> I'm imagining you're not playing for the money, but does that play into which tournaments you choose to play locally? Not really, you know, um, I'm definitely not in it for the money. I'm in it for, for the experience and the competition. You know, I love competing. Um, like for example, there was a local A tier in Seattle, the Fort Telecom open was this weekend. Um, and, you know, there's no guarantee that I shoot well at Masters Cup and spend money on flights down there and compete when maybe I stay here and, and win an A tier. But um, for me, you know, I'm always going to choose the the higher tier tournaments over the lower tier. So if there's a national tour or a pro tour that I can get to and, and am able to play, I will go play that. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, you know, it's it's not about the money for me. I'm I just I enjoy playing disc golf and I enjoy competing and. I want to compete at the highest level. So if that's going to be an option for me, then I will take that. Yeah. And just cool. I'll toss this over to Nick, but I thought it would be pretty obvious, like who actually plays for money. But at the same time, there are aspiring players who are like, oh, I'm going to pick this event. It, it It's, I don't know. Everyone plays for different reasons. It sounds to me like in either you're, you're, you're hiding it very good, but it sounds to me like you're very passionate about the sport and that's why you're playing. So cool. Yeah. So throughout the years, you've had different sponsorships. Like I think, you know, cause I've known your name for a little while now you've been with Prodigy, I think latitude 64. Um, and now correct me if I'm wrong, but you're with Innova at the moment. Yes. So talk to us about the sponsorships and let's say, you know, leaving one for another, like how does that all play into the life of a professional disc golfer? Yeah. You know, at first, um, I grew up throwing Innova and so I always wanted to be sponsored by Innova. Um, and when I was in college and, and 
started winning some tournaments. Um, I reached out to them, but they were a little hesitant. It was the beginning of the year. They already have a big team um, and I'm a full-time student, so I don't get to play a lot and all that. And then uh, Prodigy reached out. I believe it was Sarah Hokum um, at a tournament in California. And she got me in touch with Will and, um, and I was stoked, you know, it was just kind of awesome. I'd never been sponsored at that point. So I was all on board. And then the company was still super young and most of the guys were on the East coast and I was on the West coast. And so it didn't feel like I was a part of that team. You know, they'd, Oh, have you thrown this run? And I, I, I never, you know, it just didn't feel, um, and they didn't have the complete lineup and all that. They were a young company. And then Dave Feldberg reached out, I believe two years later about Latitude and they were combining with Dynamic and it was going to be a big old thing. And Ricky joined and um, there was some cash involved in that one. And so I said, yeah, sure. You know, I'd love to get paid to play disc golf. I had never done that before. Um, and so I was with Latitude for a couple of years and, uh, and then the opportunity presented itself to, to switch to Innova and, you know, just growing up throwing Innova, um, I've have all the, you know, the older discs, the, the KC rocks. I always kind of, it was always my end goal to be able to compete using those discs that I had loved since I was seven or eight years old. And so, um, when that, and, and at that point it was kind of decided for me that I wasn't going to be playing full time. Mm -hmm. I was going to be teaching and then playing, you know, when I could. And so I, I just wanted to have fun and I wanted to throw, my favorite disc and so that's why i made that switch and and now i mean you know everyone says it but i don't i don't plan on ever leaving enema innova i mean the disc just that's it's kind of just disc golf for me at this point you know i i learned with them i i trust them so much and and i love all the you know the company and being in california i can go down and visit the warehouse and all that mm -hmm. so um i'm super happy super confident in my bag and uh, I hope to stay on Innova for as long as I can. Very cool. It seems yeah. like you are invested very much in your teaching position, and, and obviously the world needs teachers. Is there anything that would change and say, hey, I love disc golf, I love teaching, but like right now the disc golf opportunity is going to take precedence at some point? Is there anything that could happen to make that take place? Or are you just like set, no, like, I'm pretty confident this is just how it's going to be. I split split the two. You know, I've I've struggled with that for probably the past year to be honest, and um, you know, it's not like a money thing, it's not a a disc golf thing, it's more of just a life choice. Um, you know, I I have my life up here. Um, I have my girlfriend and dog and um it's I like having somewhere to come home to. Um, I like having kind of that home base, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, and giving up that to, you know, either live out, live out of a van for eight months out of the year, um, or, you know, fly around and just be on the road all the time. And then, you know, I, it makes me nervous. What happens if, if I have an injury, what happens, you know, from November to February, how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to pay rent? All that. So, um, I guess it is a little bit of a money thing, but it's also just kind of the lifestyle thing at this point, you know, it's, I'm not going to say it's never going to happen. Um, but where my life is right now, I think this is the best option for me. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something that I've thought a lot about. It's something that I've talked to my girlfriend about. 
Um, and it's, it's definitely a possibility. Um, but at the moment, at least for the remainder of this year, you know, I'm going to keep teaching and, and, and play whenever I can. Very cool. Are you going to, are you going to start teaching disc golf? Do you do that already? Um, I've tried, you know, I've popped into some PE classes at different schools and, and I give a lot of lessons up here to locals. Um, it, it's something that I would like to do and, and I've thought about it. Um, it's hard, you know, with, I mean, it's kind of like, I, I wouldn't be able to, I don't know if I'd be able to do that as a career because, you know, school's budgets are so tight already and they're not going to shell out money for a disc golf lesson. So, um, I, I definitely want to give back and, and grow the sport and, you know, introduce it to schools. Um, maybe if things settle down for me a little bit, it's been kind of a busy year. Maybe that's something I can, I can try to focus on next year, but. Um, yeah, I guess generally yeah. I was saying like, I, I should have worded it better. Do you, do you teach lessons as in like, do you do lessons for locals? Uh, you seem like you'd oh, be yeah. very good at that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I definitely do. I mean, when I moved up here, I, I just posted on the, the local Facebook page, Hey, I'm moving up, you know, I'll have some free time, love to do some lessons. And I got like 20, 30 responses in the first couple of days. Um, everyone reaching out, you know, I'd love to do a lesson, blah, blah, blah. So I've been doing that a lot. Um, you know, obviously I'm, when I'm playing tournaments on the weekends and working during the week, I wouldn't, I'm not able to do it as much as I would like. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, um, I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot giving lessons and, uh, you know, I think it's even helped my game a little bit, just kind of listening to my own advice. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I love giving lessons. I think it's super fun and it's, and it's important to, you know, teach people the right way and, and to give back and reach out and, um, you know, just kind of further become a member of the community. Did you, um, any other sports or do you have an athletic background? I, I know you talked about disc golfing for so long, but I just mean in general, you're talking about throwing the right way. It's important to do like, where did you learn all of your um, technique and um, mechanics, if you will, for disc golf? Yeah, I, I definitely had a big sports background. I was a baseball, basketball kid growing up and super busy all throughout high school. And so, you know, my, it was kind of funny, my game, when I wasn't playing sports, it would kind of get better and better and better. And then sports season would hit and I would drop back down and then I'd get better and better and drop back down. Um, and then when I was in college and, and didn't have anything else to focus on, that's when I was really able to elevate my game. But um, I'm trying to, you know, like my form, I wasn't very happy with my form for a long time. Um, I used to kind of like pull down from the pocket a little bit and I just wasn't the correct way to throw in my opinion. So I actually changed it like two years ago. Um, really hard to do when you've been doing something for so long, but you know, when I was learning back in 2001, 2002, I can only remember one video on YouTube and it's Dion Arlen out at the, uh, I believe the discraft one. Yeah. Yeah. And throwing up the toboggan or whatever. And that was like the only video back then. So, yeah. I didn't, and you know, no one had camera phones, so no one was filming me throw. I had no idea what I looked like. Yeah. Um, I remember the, seeing myself for the first time on video and thinking, "What? that's what I look like? <laughs> I'd never seen it. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's a lot different now for all the new people learning. They can compare their form and all the slow-mo videos and all the different athletes. And, um, But yeah, I remember, you know, I, it was kind of just self-taught and what felt right, and, and I thought it was good, and then later realizing that definitely I needed to make some tweaks. So, um, 
but but I do I definitely have a big athletic background and you know playing sports my whole life and I was a pitcher in high school so I think a lot of the uh, the mental game kind of translates to that and you know the ability to like really focus down and not let anything distract you and um, just different things like that. Mm. Yeah. Nice. So real quick because I'm watching the live chat as we go. <laughs> Um, people are interested in a few things. One of them being your disc collection behind you. Do you have any special, uh, discs that are hanging up or notables that'd be like, wow, this is really one I'd, I would share with people if they were asking or what, what are those behind you? There's, um, a, there's, there's hundreds of, for our listeners, there's a wall or there's a shelf full of hundreds of discs. Yeah, so. <laughs> there's a lot. It's oh, easy yeah. to accumulate them. Um, I don't have a lot of crazy stuff, to be honest. It's a lot of just stock stuff. Um, you know, obviously, those are all KC Rocks up there. Um, I'm really trying to think. Like, <laughs> I don't know. So you're not a big-time collector. You just have a lot of discs. And are most of those then for throwing? You don't really collect much. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I am I love discs. I love buying new discs that I think are sweet, but I'm a thrower. so. You know, you give me the sweetest, like I just put a brand new 10 time rock with a sweet San Francisco Safari stamp over the top that, you know, gorgeous disc and right in the bag throwing. So, nice. um, you know, I, I am like a collector. I like a lot of the older, nice plastic, but I also throw it and it just goes right because it flies good and it lasts forever. So um, that's all Innova and a couple disc mania. And, you know, some of them, a lot of them are sweet, but. It's nothing I would never throw. It's all stuff that's going to end up in the bag eventually. Yep. Gotcha, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Well, I mean, if there's anything that you want to <laughs> talk about more on it, I, I'm out of questions, okay. I guess. Nick's out, Nick's out of questions, which is fine. <laughs> I, I'm i just generally interested. This yeah. is one of my favorite questions to ask when we have a guest on who I, don't, I know very little about is, what yeah. other things do you enjoy doing? Is it cooking? instruments like there's got to be other things i know you teach a lot you travel and play disc golf but there's got to be that little off time you're on vacation and you're not disc golfing because you're with your girlfriend does your girlfriend disc golf she doesn't she has there you um, go yeah she she's thrown a couple times um she likes watching she she you know she we're both outdoorsy so she likes the courses walking around but um yeah you know i I have a lot of hobbies. Um, I, I got really into rock climbing during COVID. Um, spent a lot of time doing that. I love running. You know, I go on a couple runs a week. Um, I love playing tennis. Um, you know, all, pretty much, you know, any, any type of sport um, I'm in. So I, I definitely keep very busy um, and I, I'm always doing something. Now, rock climbing, are you at like an indoor gym bouldering and stuff like that? Or, you know, literally outside on a mountain and you're trying yeah, to climb yeah. up a rock? I've been, I definitely started in the gym. I've been outdoors twice. Um, back in California, my buddy had all the gear. He was more experienced than I was. Um, and since I've moved up here, I don't have all the outdoor gear yet. Um, so I've only been in the gym. But uh, it's it's something I would like to keep working at and get better at and eventually be able to climb outside all the time it's a killer workout <laughs> oh it's awesome it's yeah i love it i love it's it insane. i uh yeah. i started rock climbing when i was 16 because uh one of my friends was really getting into it and then one thing leads to another he's 
That's what he does for a living now. And yeah, he's won Canadian nationals and you may know his name. If you're into, if you're into rock climbing, look up Josh Larson. He's got a TV. It sounds familiar to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So look him up. He's an incredible climber, but like, that's who I started with. And Nick says it's a workout, man. Yeah. If I tried to go back now, his brother. Yeah. (laughs) If I tried to go back climbing now, I would last maybe 10 minutes, but that's because I'm not like in it. But yeah. back in the day, it was like three hours. So, like, uh, what did you yeah. notice? Did you notice the difference uh, outdoor climbing when you did it? It's way more rough on your hands. Like, oh, it's a different sport yeah. in general. I mean, in, <laughs> yeah. in the gym, you got a bright pink little thing coming out of the wall. <laughs> yep. And I'm out on the rock and I have no idea where to put my foot. <laughs> Where's my, is this going to fall? Like, yeah. oh man, totally different. Totally yeah. different. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it was thrilling. I, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I definitely wasn't as fearless outside, you know, when you're in the gym and you fall, you, you're hanging there or you can stop yourself a little bit. And mm-hmm. when I was outside, I'm like, do I really want to scrape down eight feet on this wall right now? <laughs> yeah. Really? So, um, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, uh, my hometown is where Kevin Jorgensen is from and he's actually building like this. It's supposed to be this crazy, badass new rock gym. So, uh, yeah, yeah, right after I move, you know, he builds the gym. But whenever <laughs> I go back, I'm definitely going to check it out. Cause yeah. I think our our buddy Josh is he's the USA Olympic coach yeah. now, and I think he's out of Ogden, Utah, which is where oh, we're going oh. for Worlds or Salt Lake. Yeah. I think I think that's where the USA training camp is. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure he lives out there. So I'm assuming that's okay. where they do all the training. Okay. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, there's a there's a little town that's like two hours east of here called Leavenworth, Washington. And I know it's like a big rock climbing spot. And every everybody who's, you know, into the sport and really good, they always like to go over there. I like doing it in the off season because I mean obviously it tears apart your hands with your <laughs> fingertips and then your forearms yeah. just get destroyed. So if I did it like right now, I wouldn't be able to play a tournament for two yeah. months. <laughs> oh yeah, no. I, and I've oh man, I've I've like gone rock climbing and then tried to play disc golf, and it it's yeah. like shooting a basketball after doing an arm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, you can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I was telling my kids, we just got them one of those large trampolines for the backyard, and I'm like, go jump on that trampoline for like half an hour, then get off and try jumping on the ground. It's like. <laughs> It's just like feels horrible. So yeah. Um, but okay. And one other hobby you mentioned was running. Um, yes. Is that purely recreational or do you enjoy the competitive side of running? Oh man, you, I cannot compete in running there. Okay. I I've done a half marathon and I'll tell you that is the most humbling sport. Cause I mean, I'm like, I'm young and I'm fit and I'm thinking I'm fast and, you know, I'm getting smoked by 60 year old ladies that have legs that are like two feet tall, just whizzing by me. I mean, you can, I mean, I love it for the personal benefit and like the personal battles for myself and I'm trying to beat my own times and, and, you know, just, you know, feeling accomplished after a run, it's great, but competing in a race or something like that, no way. (laughs) Do you think that training for your own self, helped you this past weekend uh hiking up and down those hills playing a lengthy amount of holes compared to usual yeah (laughs) you know it it probably did i think you know i think running just for not even for disc golf just for my mental state as a person i think it's really good for me um and i think you know obviously you're alone for 45 minutes to an hour however long you run and you're kind of alone with your own thoughts and so um 
you know, I think I definitely translate that to the course and I'm able to, um, you know, stay positive in my own head and, and stay confident and, you know, not let the pressure get to you or whatever. Um, but I, I just feel like for me, it, it's good for my mental state uh, going on long runs like that. Cool. My, That's my good to bro- know. Yeah, my brother's probably listening. I would hope. My, my brother says he listens to the show. He was on as a guest host last week. Um, nice. He's training for a hundred miler coming up here in like a month or two. And the reason I bring him up because you talked about good for your mental state. And that is the one thing that he has said like many times, like he needs to run for his mental health. Like he needs to, Yeah. like just as a person, yeah. it's, it's, it's very helpful. So that's cool to hear you saying the same. Maybe Nick, that's what's missing in our games. We need to go take a run. <laughs> I guess so. Maybe I got to start going out for runs. Uh, it's funny. So in 2019 for the MVP opened, I had actually started going to a buddy of mine was a personal trainer. So I started doing personal training, a little bit of weightlifting and everything like that. And then uh, like a week before the tournament is when Paul and Hannah came to town and Paul was really into running. So we would go out for a run before our practice rounds and, you know, obviously my legs were tired, whatever. I probably should stretch a little bit more. I'm not used to it, but it's funny because that was the year that I had my best finish at a pro tour. There you so go. Maybe, maybe I got to get back into running and I'll, well, I'll start playing better again. Yeah. I, I mean, I totally like I, I, my legs felt fresh all weekend. I, mm-hmm. I didn't feel fatigued walking up and down the hills. Um, you know, mentally I'm able to stay focused for a longer period of time. I mean, 24 holes, it's a long time to, to stay yeah. focused on every tee shot, every approach, every putt. Um, that's honestly, I didn't think about it, but that's probably something that led me to, you know, only having two bogeys and, Really yeah. not having any terrible shots off the tee that led to bogeys. It was just, you know, some putting woes. So, no, uh, that's definitely, that's a really good point. Cause obviously, the one thing that's very hard to teach in disc golf is a mental game. Like people have asked me that before, they're like, you know, what do you do during backups? And I'm like, that's, that's all up to you. Like, I can't tell you what to do during a backup yeah. because everyone thinks about what's going on differently. Yeah. And so, like, for me, I like to just kind of like stretch out a little bit and kind of put my mind elsewhere and then try to get back into it when, you know, we're live in the card again. Yeah. But for you, it might be completely different. So I think yeah, even just being able to say like, hey, running has helped me out my mental game. Like that's cool in and of itself because then I can think, okay, maybe I'll start running a little bit more and see if that actually helps me as well. Yeah, 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 definitely. I think, um, you know, I think it's important to be able to not think about disc golf while you're playing, but then also mm-hmm. when you step up to the tee, have that laser focus and be able to execute that shot. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which, you know, having a pitching background, it's, basically the same thing you know you're out clowning around doing whatever but then when it's time to pitch ready to go so yeah um yeah i mean mental game is huge i mean that's obviously no secret mm-hmm. um it's what so, is that yogi Berra quote 90 percent of the game is half mental or something like that I don't know, but that was like always <laughs> one of my favorite quotes yeah so well, i think who was it uh ken climo and dave felberg were talking years and years ago and dave talked about it on our show too where he said you know, at the end of a round, he's mentally exhausted. You know, he's just yeah. toast. And Ken Climo said, he's like, it's because you're thinking about disc golf, you know, the whole time you're playing. He's yeah. like, I'm thinking about disc golf that like, you know, minute before his shot and then during his shot, that 30 seconds. And then after that, when he throws it, he can't change what just happened. Yeah. So you got to think about something else. You got to put that behind you and then you got to go and kind of like refocus when you get up to the next shot. So, Yeah. The less you think about disc golf, maybe when you play, the better you play. It's, so, it's wild. Well, obviously you performed pretty well, uh, really well. Um, 
what's your biggest tip for mental game? How are you, how are you tackling the mental game? It's something that I've stumbled upon actually in a beneficial way that probably I've played 14 years, probably up till about a year and a half, two years ago and something clicked for me, but I, no one's here to hear my take on it. Like what's your take for mental game? How are you attacking these holes and how are you handling it? I think first you need the confidence that, you know, you can do it. Um, you know, when one big, big advantage for me at Dela is I've played those holes a hundred times and I know, you know, exactly what I want my shot to look like, what disc I want to throw. So when I'm stepping up to the tee pad, I know I'm going to execute this shot. Um, and then for me this weekend, I just really tried to focus on one shot at a time. Cause if you start thinking about, you know, three holes from now, four holes from now, or that bogey you took three holes ago, I mean, it's just too long and too grueling of a round. So, you know, throw your tee shot, like you said, throw your tee shot, you know, think about something else. Then you get to your approach or your putt and then you're focusing on, on just this putt. Um, but for me, you know, I think it, at first it just comes the, the confidence knowing you can execute what shot you're about to throw and then just one hole at a time. You know, um, you got to have the memory of a goldfish 10 seconds and then it's gone and then you're you're ready for your next throw. But how yeah. come? And now I'm just doing this for the banter back and forth. How come though? Yeah. Some people aren't able to walk away from a bogey or a double bogey, and they aren't able to have that short mental mental lifespan. And you are like, how are you able to walk away from that bad moment? What have you told yourself that helps you do that? Um, Dale is a unique course, and I'm just speaking because of Masters Cup. And I I know that one, there's 24 holes, so there's plenty of time to come back. And two. They're hard holes. No one's, you know, most people aren't shooting 10 down in the last 12 holes. So I just told myself, you know, if, and I, I had a bogey early and I, I believe it was my second round. And I said, I got 21 more holes, shoot good, you know, pars and birdies, and you'll be able to climb back up. So, um, you know, you can never win a tournament after the first round or after the second round, but I believe you can lose a tournament after yeah, 100%. Yeah, early in the tournament. So, um, and it's cost me, you know, a handful of times where I was winning and then I blew up and then I mentally I gave up and then I lost by one. And it's like, well, geez, if you would have snapped out of it after one hole instead of four holes, you still would have won. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you never know and you really shouldn't care about what other people are doing. It's just you in the course. And, you know, the course takes one from you with a spit out or bad luck. Then you just get it on the next hole. It, it, it usually evens itself out like that. Um, yeah. Uh, you're not going to have 18 holes of bad luck in a round. So I think, you know, it's important to just, you have one bad hole. Okay. I'm going to get the next one. Um, and if it doesn't happen, okay. I get the one after that. Um, mm. But yeah, it's, it's not easy to do. It it really isn't because especially in today's game, you know, you start off five pars in a row, you got 45 people beating you. Um, everyone's so good. Now you, you get one bogey, you feel like you're losing two strokes to the field. So it's like that much more pressure to not to not have a bad hole. Yeah. Um, but you just got to, you know, you can't play against the field. You got to play against the course. Mm -hmm. Now, kind of talking about that scoring separation, almost birdie or die mentality. Uh, you were saying you weren't super happy with your finish at OTB Open, but the style of disc golf courses that was played on a regular golf course. Like what kind of style of courses do you like to play? Do you like that Milo, that Santa Cruz, or do you like that OTB open goat Hill kind of, you know, disc golf courses? Um, I definitely prefer Santa Cruz, Milo, anything where you, you have to shape shots, you're using all your discs in your bag. Um, every shot is required. 
Um, I love throwing mids and fairways. I believe I only had like two destroyers in my bag at Daylaw, and I had mm-hmm. five rocks and seven mids or whatever. Yeah. Um, but as far as OTB, I thought that was a great course. Um, you know, Leonard's a buddy of mine, and, and I knew he would do a good job, and I was really impressed with how well he designed that course. Um, you know, I've never played Goat Hill, and no knock on the course, but throwing 700 feet every hole isn't really appetizing to me. I mean, I know it's a style of golf and you still got to be accurate. You can't yeah. just, I mean, they got OB paths and you got your spots to land. So it's still, you have to be accurate, but, um, you know, just my personal preference and growing up in NorCal, um, throw everything in my way and I'll figure out a way to get around it. That's, that's my nice. favorite style of golf. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally get it. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it would be, it wouldn't be the Nick and Matt show if we didn't bring up Maple Hill. Have you ever gotten out here? This is where oh. I record from. I, I love that course. I played it, uh, I don't even, 2015, 16, okay. somewhere in there. Um, and I did decent. I think I got top 20. Um, love that course. I, yeah. Any course where, where you know, you play in the woods for six holes, then you're in the open for six holes, then you're back in the woods, or any just that variety that a course can provide, love it. Um, Maple Hill is a special place, really special. It is. And uh, it's it's one of those courses where you got to have every shot, um, and you know you got certain holes where you got to pucker up and hit a line, or you're taking a bogey, and you, certain holes where you can relax and just throw far. But um, yeah, I mean that course has everything. It's got elevation, it's got water, left, right, straight. I mean just everything. I love yeah. it. Yeah, I think it's it definitely was... very challenging. I was fortunate enough. I went back to Massachusetts last weekend, and I got to play around on golds with a couple buddies, and I shot two over par. And oh, wow. I hadn't played golds in a long time. And I kind of like, I got the birdies on four and five, but then I took the bogey on six and seven, which is just yeah. so easy to do. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well now I'm back to even. And then, you know, front cage, miss putt on eight, turn goes right into the water. So I take a four on that. I'm like, okay, that's just typical. That's maple golds for you. But it's fun because yeah. you do have those water shots. You do have the elevation and, you know, it, it is, it's a great course. And it makes you think differently. Like when I, when I went out to Vegas this year, I've never played that style of disc golf before, but it was super fun of like, okay, on these par fours, I have to land a shot here. Yeah. And then I have to throw another good shot up to here. And that course wasn't super long. Um, they were long in and of itself, but compared to like the goat Hill, what it looked like. And then even for me, OTB open, I don't have a roller game in Massachusetts. We just never had to learn how to do that. So of course like that, I'd probably struggle a ton on, but Vegas was actually really fun to go out and experience that open style of disc golf. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually haven't played Vegas. Um, it looks like fun. I heard they're changing it next year to like one big course or something instead of three. Really? Um, I don't know. Exclusive news. Spoiler. Yeah. Don't quote me on that. I, it was, I could have been hearing wrong or I don't know, yeah, I don't yeah. know what my source was. I wouldn't be surprised I would love though. it if they did that. I would think that'd be very cool. I wouldn't be surprised based off of, yeah. I don't want to say the reviews, but the player feedback was that, you know, it would be nice to narrow it down to a course or two. Even yeah. yeah. So my thing is, you know, for the pros take out the infinite course and then, um, just play the end of a factory store course, which was my favorite actually. And then the end of a course, I thought those were two really, really fun courses that made you, you know, play two different styles of disc golf. You had to throw the forehands, the backhands and everything like that. And so for me, that was fun. But the infinite course was kind of a little, you know, it was super windy. 
the first round at Vegas this year, but it was very like it's very, very birdie or die for the pros. Yeah. Almost to where it's like, you know, it's it's a little too short, I would say. Yeah. I hear you. All right. Man, I'm gonna tell you right now, James, the chat is like, well, new fan here in James. Um, you got other people saying bring James on more often. We can create a segment for him. So the, the uh, listeners, I'm sure. Teach us mental game. Yeah. (laughs) The listeners driving around in their cars or at their work, if they're listening to us there and those who are watching live right now and listening, they're enjoying it. We thank you very much for coming on. Um, Total respect for what you're doing and also enjoying the disc golf life as well. That is I don't know. Again, no one's here to hear my story, but I have four boys and a wife and I, and I have to work obviously. And I just said, Hey, I'll just be an amateur for life. (laughs) Like it just is what it is. I've just come to settle with that. But I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, Is there anything that we missed or that you would like to give shout outs for uh, before we let you go? Um, You know, not really just Nick and Matt. Thank you guys. It was a pleasure talking to you. Um, I was super excited to be here and, uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully the rest of the year goes well and, and we'll be doing this again soon. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> That's right. All right, man. Um, safe travels when you're traveling to these tournaments in the near future here and, uh, have a great evening. Awesome. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. No problem. Ladies, James. Bye. All right, everybody. That was James Proctor. Um, Sponsored by Innova, plays big events, but is not on the tour, if you will. Yeah. Nick, would you would you call him a touring player? I think for his skill level, you could say when he does go out to a tour event, he's usually going to compete pretty well. But he's not. I mean, he he even he said it himself. He's not a touring pro to where he's not living the van life right now. He's not playing thirty plus events a year out on the road. So he's not technically a touring pro, but skill-wise, he definitely has everything. We just saw it this last weekend. He has everything that he needs to do um, to go out. And actually, if he was to go out and be a touring pro, he can do it. Right. So that was, uh, man, I try to do live reactions. And sometimes, Nick, I actually thought about, I didn't even talk to you about this. I'm like, I need to start up a, a show review from Matt's perspective. And you can do one mm-hmm. from Nick's perspective, but like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking I'm going to go out on the course yeah. and I'm going to play six holes mic'd up and I'm going to talk mm-hmm. about like what I did like, what I didn't like, the things I messed up on, like just from my perspective, the show, I don't know if it'll happen, maybe a Patreon or something. Yeah. Maybe, 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 <laughs> um, we did have a super chat by the way for, uh, bring, bring back judge that disc golfer. I, <laughs> I think we would be remiss not to address that. So here's the deal. It is more work to create those segments. Number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, we're trying to find the right place to fit it into this newer show format. So it's possible we do go Patreon with that. And, And if you think Nick and I are not talking about this regularly, we are. We're trying to yeah, figure it it's out. A con- yeah, and it, it, it's funny because it usually comes up every day after the show of like, <laughs> hey, let's, you know, how can we tweak the show a little bit more? Matt and I constantly throughout the week or, you know, group chatting with everyone that's involved with the Foundation Podcast Network too of like, how can we make the show better? Do we need to feel like we need to tweak anything? Yada, yada, yada. And uh, Judge That Disc Golfer is a subject that does come out a lot, whether we 
you know, do the, our regular show on Monday nights. And then on Wednesday night, we air judge that disc golfer, right. You know, something like that. Maybe like have a, like more of that game show feel that, yes. you know, maybe we used to have, maybe that's another night of us doing this. So we're trying to figure it out. And honestly, one great way that could help us out with it. Leave some comments. Where would you guys want to see judge that disc golfer? Do you want to see In it? Show? Like, <laughs> you know, Matt and I, let's say we've been aired right now for an hour and 20 minutes. We're going to talk about different courses, are we outgrowing courses? So that may take 20 minutes. So then we'll be at an hour and 40. <laughs> so let's say if we're doing a two hour show, you know, does everyone want to stick around? Does everyone want to listen to a judge that disc golfer segment? Or would you rather tune in on like a Friday night? Or if we just dropped a YouTube video, would you guys rather watch it like that? So right. Let us That's know, the point. We're curious. We, we want to hear reviews of it in the sense of like, how can we make the show better? Yeah, people liked having the pros participate in segments that were not specifically, how's your game? What discs do you throw? We get it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we'll bring it back. It's going to either be in the show, one-off every four or five episodes, or we do it separately, standalone, as Nick said. Yeah. Or, and this is a good way to support the show, I think we might go to Patreon for extra content. Um, yeah. So, Nick, speaking yeah, of... I think, uh, I- well, I'll just say really quick, the one thing, you know, a lot of people have come up and talked to me about the show, which is super awesome. I love it. Whenever I see people in the public and you talk about the show, it, it means a lot to me. Um, one of the things that people really liked is last year we were able to have pros on for a long period of time. This year is a little different, only in the sense of last year they shut down the tour. So pros were, you know, practicing throughout the day and then we were we were able to have them on for an hour and a half, two hours. It's very hard to do that nowadays. I mean, look at half the times that we have interviews. It's people, they pulled over on the side of a highway and they were able to spend 20, 30, 40 minutes with us. So we're, you know, like I said, we're doing everything we can to figure out exactly what's the perfect sweet spot. And we feel like we're getting close to that point. (laughs) Well, I will say this, and this is very interesting. We're taking notes right now live (laughs) and our listeners post post round that the chats are coming in saying, the game needs to be live. So, Nick, I don't think we're going to be posting it after a show. It's got to be a live show. They say hey, that's, I'm, I'm that's totally the fun. That. I, li- I like that. Yeah, I They're like They're saying that. that's the I fun. Mean, yeah, I loved it. One of the times where, uh, what was it? You had up to where they could text in. Yeah, oh, yeah. And we could we see made all their full results. Like that was, I, I love the engagement of that. Believe me, if that's the way that everyone wants it done, then that's the way we're going to bring it back. I have no issue with that. All right, so we're going to figure it out. Matt, we, get working on it. Yeah, get working <laughs> on it. Um, yeah. Okay. So speaking of segments and fun segments, this one was not like the most fan favorite, but it is, it is a segment that we used to do. So here we go in good favor. We are bringing back one of them and it is internet disc golf questions. <laughs> so Nick, I've got a few internet disc golf questions for us to react to. I browse the internets and here's what I came up with. Question number one from a disc golfer. And this is a fairly long question, but work with me here. Fellow players. Oh, should I do it in the old accent I used to do, Nick? No. (laughs) (laughs) Fellow players. (laughs) Okay. My arm speed is basically at a nine for max distance. I can get my pro Thunderbird to 330 to 350 feet consistently. But I believe I struggle with nose angle. But I digress. My question is, there a benefit to bagging faster discs, shot shaping in the woods? Maybe I don't see a reason to bag, say, a Zeus, 
I do have a Hades I use for headwinds, but whenever I get a little cheeky <laughs> and try to rip it, <laughs> whenever I... <laughs> Let me just start over. That's so funny. When I get, whenever I get a little cheeky and try to rip it on a calm day, it goes no further than my Thunderbird. So what say you? So he's saying his arm speed is, he's throwing 330 to 350. He thinks his angle's the problem. He's saying like, what should I throw for disc? Because my Hades is going as far as like my Thunderbird. Yeah, I mean funny like i'll use a personal story of mine years ago i think this is probably back like 2017 or 2018 i had a saint pro in my bag and i threw it over hole one golds at maybe it was like a perfect evening no wind just great great weather and i threw it over hole one golds which was a smash for a speed eight or nine whatever the saint pros are and then it's funny because i would throw a distance driver you know back then maybe a destroyer now a zeus and sometimes it would end up in the same spot. I'm like, why do I even throw distance drivers? So there's benefits to having distance drivers if you have the arm speed, no doubt. Um, but I'll teach any new players getting into the sport or people who have been playing for a little bit of time or they're noticing that their fairway drivers are going just as far as their distance drivers that you got to develop the arm speed for the max distance discs. And if you don't have it, just stick to those speeds, seven, eight, nine, tens. I mean, there's so many incredible discs that that arm speed is perfect. Um, so there's no shame in throwing a Hades just as far as your Thunderbird because the Thunderbird in a sense are like for me, it'd be a Hades and an Onyx because the Onyx is a little bit more reliable in the sense if it's a smaller rim, I could probably control it a little bit better throughout the woods. So, Oh man, Nick. I teach players. I teach players. You start out. If you can throw a putter 150 feet straight and then jump up to a mid range now and then get that mid range to go 200, 250 feet straight. And then jump up to your fairway drivers and just keep making your way going up from there. And I'm not one to teach about distance because I don't have very much of it. But at the same time, you know, I can shape shots through the woods decently well. Yeah. And my response is more just to piggyback off of what you said. First of all, I love the Onyx. Like the smaller yeah. rim, but I'm still able to get just about my max distance. Like this is to, to the point of his question. I throw a mixed bag, but let's say I was to throw a destroyer and 50 feet's a big deal, but I might get 40, 50, 30, whatever feet more with a destroyer. But like, I'm more controlled with the Onyx. So like, yeah. so to, to his point, is there a benefit to carrying a higher speed disc in your bag? Uh, yeah, there is. Yeah. But there you, is for, you have to know, you know when it windy makes situations sense. Yeah. or elevated situations. Um, there definitely is. You, you should, no matter what, you should have one. Like for me, um, I carry around a really, really stable force and it literally just goes about 250 feet and then just dive bombs left. And I use that for windy situations or something that I need to go left, right, uh, left hard or right hard. So um, it's, I mean, it's a max distance disc, but that disc doesn't go more than, like <laughs> I said, 300 feet. If then that's me really ripping on it because of how stable it is. So, so this is funny, Nick. I didn't expect this, and I don't know if this happened previously, but when we get to internet disc golf questions, I'm going to say if a, yeah. super, if a super chat comes in with an internet disc golf question, I might just read it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He says, other than the end of a groove, can you talk negatively about any mold? <laughs> and I'm trying to think See, oh, what other people, molds I don't like. People trash the groove, but how many <laughs> people have mold. actually gone out and thrown a groove? Because it flies like a beat destroyer. Hold on. At least the old ones. Did. He's looking for us to talk bad about another mold yeah. besides the end of a groove. Yeah. And I'm trying to think really quickly, like discs that I've held in my hand that I'm like, ah, horrible. Uh, 
what am I going to go with? That's hard. I don't want to trash another company because that's not what I'm trying to do right now. But for me, like the end of a turn, the little lip that it has at the bottom of the rim is just really uncomfortable. I I thought the turn flight-wise, I saw so many people throw it. And this one, I threw a mixed bag. And I was like, dang, that disc seems awesome. And I feel like I throw that really well. And I could never get a comfortable feel with it because the way the lip kind of like comes out at the end. And I just thought it was an awful feeling disc. But I know what that, mine that's is. Not to, that's that's it, not to say it's a bad disc, but. No. And it's funny because Hunter, my son, just got the yeah. disc and he's crushing it further than anything he's ever thrown. So it's awesome. Yeah. But exactly. that, that just goes to say everybody's opinion is an opinion. I think the Monarch, if we go way back, the Monarch was oh, yeah, just like going, ugh, yeah. horrible. Now, again, do they fly fine? It just seemed like a horrible disc in my hand. All yeah, right. Exactly. Internet disc golf question number, I guess this would be three technically. So this guy says, I was having a discussion with my friend and we think differently. <laughs> Is it illegal to jump putt and or step putt and you end in circle one? So basically, are you allowed to jump and step from outside circle one and land inside? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Short and sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so then Short what's the sweet. rule? That's the answer. What do you think the rule question is here is though? Like, why are they feeling that way? He's probably thinking because when you are in circle one, you have to remain balanced. So maybe if he's thinking that if you're landing in circle one, you're supposed to be remaining balanced as well. That's the only way that I could kind of see him having any sort of issue on it. Yeah. It sounds like the idea is they're like, well, technically you're in circle one, but then that would change up. Like for people who can jump five feet and land in circle one or like, anyways. Yeah. yeah no, you can, well, I mean, you look can at, land. Look at, you have different types of, you know, jump putters. Like Kevin Jones loves that 34 foot jump, putt, and he jumps forward athletically and bullets the disc into the basket. When, you know, Chris Dickerson will do a little step up, a very smooth step up, but same thing. He's stepping into circle one, a decent amount because of that. So yeah. Uh, short and sweet, you are allowed to do that. And speaking of jump putts from 34 feet, this is where I go back to. And I think I said this when my brother was on the show last week, Nick. You might have missed it. We went back to the putting topic a little bit, and I, I still feel let's move all circle. Look, we're going to get off topic. All circle putts to circle two, meaning like circle two is now your circle one. It's just called putting circle, okay? okay. But as far as putting rules go. And people are like, well, now you're going to move, you're going to lose the jump putts. No, you're not. They're going to jump putt from 68 feet out now or 69 or 70 feet. But inside of circle two, which we'd call the putting circle, they're going to stand still and demonstrate balance and hit a putt. I just think I wasn't on this train for a while about making putts harder, mm -hmm. but I kind of am. I've been slowly over the past couple of weeks changing my mindset to say, if we want pars to be a little more realistic, I'm not sure exactly what I mean when I say that because they can keep pushing holes back farther and farther and farther. But the reality yeah. is people are going to still keep getting to that basket. So what we have to do is make putting a little bit harder. And we're not going to change the size of the yeah. basket. We're not going to do that. Like that's, I don't want to say it's stupid, but it's stupid because it's never going to happen. There's too much invested into baskets. <laughs> um, but you could change the rule on putting. And this goes back yeah. to remember that episode with Brody? Someone's like, we could lotion our hands up. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah remember yeah. that? That was getting carried away. But um, I guess my take on that is I think that'd be pretty cool if you extended circle one to where uh, 
inside of the putting circle, you have to remain balanced. I do like that a lot. Um, I've, I've slowly seen a lot of players move away from that step putt or jump putt, and they're able to putt like Adam Hammes just showed incredible putting this last weekend. And, you know, what seems like 60 feet and in, he doesn't jump putt, and he's an incredible putter still. Uh, someone like Paul, the Rickies, they don't jump putt a lot. They do here and there. They do in certain situations. Um, but then you have people like the James Conrads, you have the Kevin Jones, the Chris Dickerson's who do love that step putt, that jump putt. Um, so let's say if you were to take it to where the putting circle is 45 feet, I think that would add a lot in and of itself right there. And then, um, what were you saying? You're saying the basket sizes, you said one more thing that kind of uh, popped uh, something up and I can't think of it now. I was just but, saying uh, basket size isn't going to change. Um, there's too no, much money change, invested yeah. to the courses, but it's, uh, oh, right. I think Go ahead. our stats, stats wise, this is what I was going to say. So if you move That's that putting circle back, whatever. So stats wise, I really want to see the stat of like, what's the putting distance throughout that round? Like, you know, I don't want to see, oh, they hit a 16 footer. Yep. Like, I want to know, was it 12 feet? I want to know, was yes. it 19 feet? Like I do, I want to see those because I want to see those added up because I, I could look at it and say, look, Adam Hammes murdered it putting this week well we can do that far his distance we can do that you can do that but it's not accurate it's not super accurate because it says on u disc you know he put it from 33 to 44 feet okay that was a 37 or 38 foot putt like it could have only been 34 feet but now you just gave him four feet or 40 feet but you didn't take that many and i see your point but if the same person is doing it throughout the event you're going to be relatively close if you're off by four feet over 18 holes like it's not going to be a big deal. Here, here's, you know, but that four feet adds up every time. Like, say you hit three as as four footers in a war in a row. Now you've lost twelve feet of distance on your putting because it says you did thirty eight or whatever. Yes, I guess I'm saying as long as that same person is doing it for that round, then everybody's getting that additional four feet per putt. You know what I mean? They're averaging the way. Yeah, that no, no, I I get that. I would just like the accuracy more of you know what were the putting distances? How are they going to do that? <laughs> I I mean, at that point, whoever's doing the live score, just think like, you know, we all have a pretty good idea of saying, hey, am I inside the circle or outside? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, we all have a pretty good sense of how okay. far people are putting. Ha- hash uh, marks. Me, putting. Hash marks. What's they're going to do circle one, circle two, and they're going to hash mark every foot. So they get 60 yeah, hash right. marks and then they know which one they're standing yeah. on. I don't Everyone, know how to answer every, that. Those, those little those little feathers are painted <laughs> different for each foot. But I agree, Nick. I, I actually agree with this. I would rather see the footage of putts made um, because that's a way better uh, visual. And to be fair, yeah. Udisc is asking for the stat and this isn't Udisc's fault. They are asking for it and they, and it does pull up how much, how far they've shot. I think it's a good average. We got off topic a little bit, but I will say this: some people were talking about like, Hey, let me see. Do do do. Oh, where's the advantage for anybody to jump putt again? We are off topic, but here's what I would say. They said, prove me wrong that uh, jump putts help anybody. And I want to say this. Look at Kevin Jones. Look at Chris mm-hmm. Dickerson. If we were to actually have a stat that says what type of putt they did, which would also be a very cool stat, <laughs> like mm-hmm. this player attempted a jump putt, their percentage would be way higher. So it's helping yeah. Kevin Jones and Chris Dickerson for at certain, the very least. For certain players, certain putting styles, and you know, take take Chris Dickerson and Kevin Jones. Okay, they love that little step putt right outside the circle, and they're very good with it. Like very, very good with it. Now take Simon Lazat and Eagle McMahon. You rarely ever see them jump putt because they have such a spin putt. 
and they've controlled it so much that they can putt from 70 feet without doing that. Kevin Jones, he could putt from 70 feet without jump putting, but the way he putts, it's not going to be as accurate as what Eagle and Simon do. So he found a putting style that works for him. And because of that, from that 35 foot range, he loves that jump putt. And he's, like I said, he's very good with it. Eagle, same thing. He found a putting style. That's a very big, big spin putt. He found a putting style that works for him. And from 60 feet, he doesn't even have to jump putt. And he's got the same kind of motion the whole time. So there, there's obviously there's benefits, but it's for certain players. Yeah, I'm laughing because, again, just like the last time we had this conversation, people talking about lotioning your hands to make it harder. This guy, uh, Dan, Daniel, one of our regular listeners, you have to putt with a paper plate inside the circle. <laughs> yeah. Um, can jams. Can jams. You ever play that for disc golf baskets? Yep. So that they're, they're, oh, there you go. Wrap the chains in like a can jam, like cylinder, and have like a slot. You have to get it through. <laughs> you have to get it through that. <clears throat> All right. So let's move on here. Internet disc golf questions. We got way off topic, but it was a good one. I think people will probably yeah. enjoyed that. If you yeah. are going to get an autograph, Nick, from a pro player, not Paul McBeth, okay, not for you. You're going to get an autograph from a pro player to display, okay? But they did not have a signature disc or tour disc. What would you have that player sign? You want to display this, but they don't have a disc. What would you have them sign? So I'm, I'm just choosing a disc for a famous player. It doesn't have to be a disc. Maybe it could be something else. Like, I don't oh, know. Something random. It could be uh, anything. What are you going to have them sign? Uh, probably like my hat. There you go. I've had, I've had people ask me to sign their hat. I actually thought that was pretty cool. Like the under rim of it. Um, but are you going to display um, your hat? The one that you wear all the time? You like hang that up? I mean, yeah, I mean, if it, if it was like, if it had that much sentimental value to me, absolutely. Yeah, I would hang up a hat for that. Um, like, say, say somehow I met Tom Brady just walking by and I had a foundation hat on, I would 100% have him sign it somehow and I would never <laughs> wear that hat again. I would be sitting in my room. Um, so, dude, that's yeah. what people say about Paul McBeth and you're hanging out with him, yep. living in his house. So, well, it, it was funny because. You know, Simon, uh, my girlfriend, Brittany, and I went out for a round uh, two weeks ago at Maple Hill, and someone had just bought a brand new, like, MVP disc, whatever. He saw Simon, asked if he could sign it. He's like, oh, well, now I can't even throw this disc anymore. Like, I got to go hang it up. So he went, put it in his car. It's a brand new disc. So I thought I thought it was kind of funny. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I, I would do the no, same I thing. Like, I'll say this. They say, if I had anything, and I saw Billy Joel is my favorite musician, probably pretty much of all time. If I saw Billy Joel and had him sign something, whatever he signed, I would never use again for any casual stuff like that. That would be <laughs> displayed in a very nice glass box. Uh, be careful what you have him sign then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd probably uh, be a hat more than likely. That's cool. All right. Question. Uh, I don't even know what we're on now, but here it is. What's the best way to break in a disc? For instance, just using it a lot or are there other ways? Let's get creative. And I'll just take the lead on this one. I often, and it's probably horrible, but I'll either, yes, uh, toss it like on a tree in front of me, like like not tomahawk style, not full blast, but like just t toss it or I'll take it, lay it down flat and let the uh, rim scrape a little bit on like a rock or the pavement. Like if it's brand new and I'll just kind of run it in like a circular motion slowly to just get rid of that flashing. Um, yep. What do you have for ideas? Is that the same thing you do? 
I mean, biggest thing that I do, I just, if I feel like I need to beat in a disc, I'll play a practice round and I'll throw that disc on every hole. So say I want to beat up a Zeus. I, even if it's a 180 foot hole, I'll purposely throw like a flick pretty hard, almost aiming at a tree to try to beat it up. Um, but for the most part, just casual practice round use of a disc. And I don't want to beat something up too quick because you know, I, I want a disc to last for a while and they all have their own specific reasons, but I like learning what the disc is doing consistently. I don't want to just one round throw it at 150 trees and then be like, <laughs> okay, now it's doing this and I didn't want it to do that. So I, at one uh, point thought about a business and I've now this is the second week in a row or third week in a row. I've talked about a business I'd like to start in disc golf, but yeah. this one was that's funny. selling discs. So the pro let's say it's an online pro shop. And when you purchased your disc, you could also select the amount of beat in that you want it. So like scale of one to 10, I want that disc beat in to the be, max. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Or I just want it barely beat in, please. Like a, a two. Like that mm -hmm. would be very cool. Uh, anyways, I don't know how you would do yeah. it, but uh, someone said put the discs in like a pillowcase. And then put it in your dryer without heat and just let it run. <laughs> Would that work? I don't know. It's going to beat in the rim a little bit. I'd be curious. I'd be more nervous about destroying Paul's uh, washer machine. So I'm probably not going to try that one. <laughs> or his dryer, whatever. Oh, man, that's so funny. Okay. All right, Nick, that, that wraps up that internet disc golf questions for this week. Um, so... As we get close to the end here, we have a, a topic to wrap up with, which is day law. All right. So getting a little bit more, is it debatable that a course like day law should be on an elite series tour, whether it was a disc golf pro tour, or let's just say courses like day law, we can focus on day law, but courses like, um, do they belong in an elite series tour or like, like what are the questionables? What would be the questionables this, with a course like this? Yeah, this is where we need that, you know, what are like, what are the rules and regulations for, you know, a national tour level course? I mean, we can look at this one and I'm kind of just briefly going through the UDISC really quick. And within the top 20 players, one player had a triple bogey. The rest of them are just all regular bogeys. And then that goes down actually towards like the top 35 there's only one triple bogey and then the rest are just regular bogey so is the course in a sense like too easy from what i've heard about day law is that it has a lot of fairways that play parallel with each other so you could say danger wise there's a potential danger um, that also causes for a lot of backups because if you're playing right next to someone if like someone's putting while you're teeing off you're going to let the card go that's you know technically the higher hole you're going to try to let them finish out their hole first, but then you're causing a backup on your hole. So play-wise, it gets a little bit longer. Um, but kind of like I was watching coverage today, I do enjoy watching this course because of the challenge of one bad tree kick or, you know, like I was watching James James Conrad uh, go for a couple big jump putts. And if he misses wide of the basket, he's going all the way down the hill. So there's a, there is a big risk-reward factor to it. Um, but another thing that I heard, parking at Santa Cruz, this course is not the best. And then 
I think that's part of the reason why it's a smaller field at this event. It's not the normal, let's say, 144-player national tour event or pro tour. This one only had the 76 players in the MPO division and the 37 players in the FPO division. So I think that's one big thing. Just the park itself might not be big enough for a national tour event. But, I mean, year year in and year out, and this, this tournament's going on, been going on forever. Um, people keep coming back to it. So obviously it's, you know, obviously it's good enough. All right. Well, let me ask this question then, because I think you hit on most of the actual uh, disc golf play ability, if you will, bringing that point. And I think that that's, that's important. That's where I think it should start. But then you have the question of, okay, how well does it film? And I guess when I say film, I mean live specifically, um, but also film in general. Okay. So like a disc golf course, I mean, like, see, here I go. Listen, I call it a disc golf course compared to what a golf course. So Mm -hmm. when you're thinking about both, my general reaction is I personally love, and I'm going to say it this way, a disc golf course. And what I mean when I say that, and this is, I think we almost can quote Paul. Paul was saying, like, this is kind of the roots of disc golf, like the way this course plays. You got to control a mid or, or whatever. Like, you got to play yeah. disc golf. And, again, I'm not going to break down what I fully mean by saying disc golf course, but that's what it was. Um, I love that, and so I love seeing that on coverage. Yeah. But the problem is, no live. It's that Yeah, that, that was a huge... Um... And for people who don't know, the reason there wasn't live coverage because the cell service is so bad out there. And the Disc Golf Pro Tour actually, for months now, has been trying to figure out a way to film live at Daylaw, the Masters Cup. Um, unfortunately, they just weren't able to make it happen. But yeah, that is obviously, that's a huge letdown in the sense of how, you know, we are pushing for those more live viewers. We want everyone watching the live coverage on the Disc Golf Network. And to have a tournament that's at this caliber, not be able to have that live feature to it does kind of suck but for instance this golf pro tour i don't have any inside scoops here but i think it's been pretty public like they're not going to choose a course for their tour that they can't do live like that is a major factor it could have everything right and but they can't go live with it the cell service thinks they're again i don't have inside scoop it seems like this is one of their bigger deciding factors um yeah the Which feeling, yeah, and the feeling that I took away after having missed live this week, there was two. One's kind of funny, Nick. I was kind of like, oh, it was kind of nice. It was kind of nice not having disc golf that I felt like yeah. it's it's the whole FOMO. Like if there's live yep. disc golf on, yep. like I want to watch it. Um, and that's a great marketing plan. That's why Disc Golf Pro Tour is in large part doing so well. Yeah. So Agreed. I mean, is it a course like Day Law? That's where we're going back to. It's, I think it's going to stick around and I think it should. If it can't do live, imagine if there was a playoff game in whatever sport you like to watch besides disc golf Mm -hmm. that you couldn't watch live. It would be, it it would be weird, but I'm not saying it would be bad. I'm saying that like it could become that experience. You only get to experience that live if you're in person. That could be special. It could be. Um, I don't know what to say. I think day law should stick around yeah. for the history. Like it'd be like saying one day Agreed. Maple Hill outgrew itself or couldn't do cell service. Would we say get yeah. rid of Maple Hill? 
I mean, no, in the sense of like, I think you and I are way too biased in that conversation, but no, yeah. Um, if they got rid of, yeah, if the cell service I, went so bad, cause I, I they like already it. lose cell service on like the back, yeah. however many holes. Yep. So like if the cell service got so bad and like the whole course wasn't there, like would the yeah. pro tour say, sorry. I think the pro tour would. Yeah. And I, and I think every event should be held at that standard of the, the disc golf pro tour you know, they created the disc golf network and they're doing everything they can to make the live coverage the best that they can. So why would they go and try to do an event where it's like, oh yeah, hey, this is our product, but you're paying $9 a month or $8 a month, whatever it is. And we're not going to let you have the perks that comes with paying that money per month. So they obviously, they don't want to piss off the people. And they, they made an agreement with the PDGA and the national tour this year and the majors to do the disc golf network coverage at these events. But like you said, I don't think I could ever see uh, the Masters Cup becoming an actual Pro Tour event. If it stays as anything, it'll stay as a National Tour event. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's not going to be a Pro and then Tour. Also, <laughs> yeah, it'll never be a Pro Tour in that sense. And then also spectator friendly wise, it's not. It's not. It's not spectator friendly from what it looks like. It, yeah, so I agree. That's, that's kind of a bummer, but you're going to see that a lot. And that's the biggest issue that we have in disc golf versus golf is that our courses, the wooded ones, are definitely not spectator friendly when I would say 90% of golf courses out in the world are spectator friendly, but I don't ever want to switch to only golf courses for disc golf. <laughs> <laughs> no. And, and that's kind definitely. of the point here too, is like I legitimately was stoked to watch post round coverage. I would have been stoked to watch live because I, I was getting sick of these golf courses, OTB yeah. open dynamic disc open. Um, what else do we see before that? Uh, Goat Hill. Goat Hill. And then if you go back, obviously Texas States was in the woods, but what was that one right after it? Uh after Texas States? It was a large Belton. Yeah, Belton was a large oh. part in the open. It was like similar style. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I guess no, here's, I, I I totally get what you're saying. So here's here's a quick Joe point. Joesboro is a good a good mixture of it, it's an openness where you gotta hit, you know, you gotta hit your fairway and everything like that, but you are watching players throw bombs. And uh, it, that's a good golf course design, uh, disc golf course. Excuse so me. what did we see at a course like Daylaw? And now we're kind of mixing in a little bit of the Daylaw performance with the course style. But here goes back to my point about liking a disc golf course. And I'll say it that way till the day I die. It's how it was original. Yep. It's how disc golf originally started. Um, listen to these names in the top 10. And, and most of them will sound familiar. But Adam Hammes, James Proctor, Kevin Jones, Paul McBeth. And then you get Greg Barsby. Yeah, Drew, I'm super pumped to see his name back up there. He's actually won this tournament in the past. So Drew Gibson, Kyle Klein, Matt Bell, Ricky Wysocki, Alex Russell. Now, the reason I read that whole list, you don't see Calvin Heimberg on there. You don't see you're and this is not a diss on Calvin. But the point is, when I think of players who can play in the woods, Adam Hammes definitely comes to mind. Definitely. Mm hmm. Uh, Greg Barsby seems I've watched. I've played as a doubles partner with him once in the woods is his thing. Uh, Paul Macbeth, obviously Kevin. Jo My point is like, we see different players that can perform really well in the woods. Where was yep. Eagle Eagles? Like I'm not coming. Yeah. He didn't come to this event at all. <laughs> Do you think that's, I mean, that's a big part of it. Uh, I think potentially. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how he's done in years past at this event. I could kind of look that up really quick. But, yeah, I definitely think uh, players Eagle. in his position are allowed to be picky and choosy with which <laughs> tournaments they want to go to. And 
you know, what do you think favors your game a little bit more? I mean, why wouldn't, if I have a chance to win at, let's say two tournaments are going on at the same time and, you know, I can throw pretty far, let's say OTB opens going on at the same time as master's cup. If I have a higher chance of winning the OTB open, I'm going to go play that event. So, you know, like yes. why, why make that sacrifice of going out there? Here's why. Because you want to prove you're as good as Paul Macbeth. But at the same, I mean, for them winning those tournaments, yeah, is obviously proving something. But if that's not like, I'm trying to like think how to word this really quick, but. Well, you're right. I mean, I as far as his legacy, yeah, I don't can, think, I don't think Eagles basing his game off of the De La Vega disc golf course or where he, he could probably go to that event. He'd obviously, he would go to try to win that event, but he knows it's not his style of course to where he's like, you know what? I'm going to take this off week and I'm going to practice courses that may remind me of what we are going to play at worlds. And right. that's, you know, that could potentially be the difference of that. But I guess what I'm trying to say is wins matter. And so you're right. He can choose the events where he's like, man, this matters because I can win it. But in the end, if he has five world championships, but no one's going to knock him. They're going to be like, wow, he's a five-time world champion. But if you put him up against five-time Paul McBeth world champion in him, you probably would say, who would you choose to play every style course? And I would go with Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I agree with that too. And I'm saying he can change that. But at the same time, like right now, when you're speaking of that, who am I picking at, you know, let's say the Vegas courses versus the Santa Cruz courses? I'm obviously, I might take Eagle at Las Vegas and I might take Paul at Santa Cruz because right now, with how they are playing this year, Paul obviously had a dominant performance at DDO, which was huge. Um, but at the same time, you could see throughout the year, Eagle has performed better on those large wide open courses this when year. Paul has performed better on those wooded courses. I'm talking about legacy, but I hear your point this year, this year, yeah. you're not wrong. Um, well, legacy, legacy in disc golf right now, the main legacy that we care about is world Worlds. champions. I agree. That's, that's, you know, like Should how many times has Paul won? How many times has Paul won master's cup? Do you know? Cause we're talking about the event. I think he won four or five times and it was in the last like seven years. And I only know that because so, yeah. I researched he, it. We only know that because we saw a stat Mando send us that where he won 12, 13, 14, 15 and uh, 19, I think. I'd have to go look it up again. Yeah, I could look it up again. But, but the um, point is he has won that a good amount of times in the recent yeah. past. Um, sh Now we're not going to get on this topic, but let's, let's ear note it or whatever you call that. Uh, yeah, maybe it is here. No, he won 12, 13, 14, 15, and 17. Sorry. Let's let's take this idea, this question. I think it's, it could be a good topic. Like, should winning Worlds be the determining factor? Is Worlds really that big of a deal? Like, if you have an off round at Worlds, is it really determined, like, how good or bad you are? Was Greg Barsby, be, if he never got a World Championship, I think the way the sport is, yeah, he would have never had that status. Like, as one of the best, but everyone would know Greg Barsby is one of the best of all time. Like, it, and I don't mean greatest of all time. I say one of the best, Yeah. but like a world championship all of a sudden it's like, but see, I don't know. I don't know. It's a whole nother topic. <laughs> I'm getting yeah. Like, I guess. Well, right now, like, like I said, we are so hungry for 
just labeling people off of world champions. Like everyone says, you know, Paul McBeth, the five-time world champion, Paul McBeth, the five-time world champion. But you also got to remember, he's also the two-time United States disc golf champion. He's the five-time European open champion. He's a one-time Australian open champion. You know, he's won the European masters event. Those are all different majors that he's won, but we don't put that next to his name in the sense all we, you know, all they put on the disc is a five-time world champion. I know. So that's a, that's almost how we super valuable. That yeah, that's almost how we base not not the ranking of a player because obviously, you know, Ricky, you know, right now is ranked number one in the world in my mind. He's the best player in the world right now, and then I would put probably Eagle at number two. But if neither of them get first or second at Worlds, you know, if Paul comes out and he wins Worlds again this year, you know. Leading up to that event, Paul was not the number one. But when he won that event, he's going to also win a couple events after that. And then he puts himself back into contention of, okay, he is the number one now. So Worlds is not the say-all, do-all. But when we talk about the accolades of players, like we talk about Ken Climo, he's a 12-time world champion. you know, And that's that's what we say. But he's also, what, like a five-time USDGC champion. But people may not know that as well as how many world titles he has. And I think you, he has more because of masters man. as well, but you can't take, you can't take away a world championship or any win from anybody. No, but, and this is just my perspective. And Greg, if you happen to be listening to my show, you know, I love you. He, the dude's been through my basement looking at this. We climbed over like before I bought my house. Like I, that guy is awesome. And I think he would take personal offense to hearing me say this. But like, and it's not a fluke that he won. I think he performed well enough to win. But like, nobody, and even this year or any year previous, did you think he was ever like the guy to win Worlds? It wasn't like, he is the best. Even that year, what was it, 2019? Like, 18. 18. You're not like, yeah. Greg is the best player of that year or like whatever. Like You didn't feel that at all. You felt like, and again, I can't take it away from him. I'm super proud of him. I've talk to him about it i have his world champion discs love the dude mm -hmm. but i don't feel like the world championship is like this is your best player it's it's yeah. it's you won the world championship it's, it's it's like every tournament who had the best weekend i know like if you're gonna say if you're gonna say the Bring number back one more player rounds. in the world or the highest rated player in the world is gonna win every tournament then ricky would be winning everything right now the let's highest go back to more rounds what's like that? let's go back to more rounds like seven rounds because then and everyone loves the word fluke that I use. It's not, and I don't mean that again, that others were a fluke, mm -hmm. but you take away that variable of like, oh, they had a bad round. Like you yeah. could have a bad round with seven rounds and still be able to win the world championship. But anyways. Well, look at, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got off topic, but it was, uh, it was healthy. Um, yeah. So we talked about quite a bit. I think the standout to me of tonight's show was uh james proctor wow yeah that, that was an incredible interview i was actually i didn't know he was a special needs uh special education teacher and i thought that was really really cool in and of itself and he just showed the passion how he loves his job and everything like that I thought that was very fun very very fun interview to have yeah i, I was kind of like i wish he lived out in the new england area it'd be cool to hang out i know right so that's very cool i'm very glad he was able to come on and that that show uh that interview worked out um, in wrapping up that topic, someone said, Matt, and this is Daniel again, 
awesome, awesome chatter here in our live show that happened in every sport. The best team doesn't always win the title. Sometimes a team gets exactly. hot. And, and then he goes, undefeated Pats. Remember that season? And I'm like, oh, it hurts. It hurts. The oh, Patriots God, losing in the Come undefeated on. season. They were definitely the best team of the year. And you're right. They didn't get yeah. it. And for anybody yep. who cares, Nick, I don't know where you were watching that, but I was watching it at a party. at the Cormier's house in Auburn. And what was the feeling once the, once they lost? It was like everyone got quiet and yeah, you just it felt was like sick. When your favorite, it's like when your favorite TV character dies in a show and you're not expecting it. And then someone catches a football off their helmet and somehow comes down with it. And then another Manning beats Brady. Sucks. And, but you're hanging out with all of your friends when you find out like your dog died and you're like, this is yeah, horrible. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it sucks. You just like quietly leave and like go cry to yourself. Yeah. But yeah, so interesting topic and conversation um appreciate everybody joining the show i i just want to say this because i was thinking about it this week and if you listen to this far you're probably some of our more real fans <laughs> if you last almost two years i mean two hours mm-hmm. i don't know why i feel the need to say this but it's like i do not think i am the best podcast host ever like at all like if i had to rate myself this is like judge that disc golfer. <laughs> yeah. If I had to rate myself as a podcast host, legitimately, I'm rating myself as like maybe a six, maybe, probably more in that five range. I, I have zero training in this, and uh, I'm yeah. not going to rate Nick live. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Nick can I'm rate not himself. A professional. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a professional at it. I I fumble my words a little too much, I think, right now, and then. <laughs> Um, Here's the way I, I kind of end my sentences when I listen back to the show and I'm just like, oh, what am I doing? And then, but yeah. so here's why I'm bringing this up sometimes. And I, and I know everybody has their own life and their own life's issues and everything. And they watch our show, but they feel the need to like try to knock us down a little wrong. And that's cool. But like Nick and I are just enjoying doing Nick and Matt show. If you don't like the show, move, yeah. move along. Like, it's like, we don't think we're the best. The Nick and Matt show, we yeah, don't think exactly. we're the best. We try to bring the content that we think people would enjoy. And that's mm-hmm. what we do. And honestly, Nick and I say it over and over. Nick, the in-person, specifically the in-person, love the shows. It, it beats out all the negative comments. It, it exactly. really does. We have some great fans. I just want to say that. We have some great fans, listeners, viewers who come back week after week. And we had to believe, yeah. Nick, we got to believe there's something entertaining here. But I would hope so. All right. I didn't say that for the attaboys or give me a better rating than I gave myself. <laughs> I just wanted to put it out there. We do this yeah. because we're Nick and Matt. We'll bring our opinions. And sometimes it is what it is. Again, yep. we thank you, each, each of you guys for joining the show. Nick, I think we've made it yeah. to that point, point in the show. We've made it to that point. So everyone, please, on YouTube, the Foundation Podcast Network, go check it out. Like, comment, subscribe. That would really help us out. You can already hear me fumbling my words trying to end this. Um, <laughs> go check us out on all the podcast platforms. We're there. Give us a review. And then, like I said earlier in the show, if you think of ways that you feel like you would like the show a little bit more, Hit us up in the comments. We read them all the time. Matt and I talk about the show pretty much every single day and things we could do better. Tell someone you love them this week. We'll catch you in the next one. That's right, everybody. And I'm going to say it. Last week was really tough. I didn't know how to close it out. But my brother did okay. Nick, you're awesome. We got it now. The Nick and Matt Show.
a disc golf podcast designed for you, the disc golfer. Find the Nick and Matt show on your favorite podcast platforms or stream us live exclusively on the Foundation Podcast YouTube channel.